Okay. I did it. Okay. We were, as I remember, looking at the lymphatic. And I started off with a general overview of the lymphatic system. Interstitial fluid, that fluid that's going to pool between the cells gives the cells kind of a constant environment. It will pick up material found in the interstitial fluid and the fluid itself. It'll be picked up by very small, thin uh, capillaries of the lymphatic system. And then those capillaries are going to regroup as they make their way back towards the heart and form uh, lymphatic vessels. And as we mentioned before, you notice that they have uh, valves in them to uh, give you the one-way flow of lymph. Throughout the body, we will have uh, located lymph nodes. Now, the lymph, the fluid, would then be filtered through the nodes. The nodes are lined with cells that will break down uh, any kind of pathogen that passes through. And eventually, we're going to take that lymph both on the right side and the left side, and we're going to put it back into the uh, venous system just before the major uh, superior vena cava uh, empties into the right atrium of the heart. Keeping in my cup a little, some terminology, afferent vessels are vessels that run into a lymph node, efferent vessels are vessels that, are a vessel that leaves the lymph node. So what we're going to take a look at will be the groupings of those lymph nodes located in the axillary region, the armpit region. Fairly important area. We'll take a look at that in its, in its design. Now, overall the uh, total body, I think as I mentioned before, the right hand the right uh, forearm, arm, right part of the uh, thoracic region, right part of the head, all of that lymph will eventually be drained back by a lymph node, a lymph node, a lymph vessel, here we're over on the right side, a lymph vessel referred to here as the right lymphatic duct. It's this one. This will be our final lymph vessel draining just where about the internal jugular vein meets the, uh, the subclavian vein in that spot there is approximately on the right side where we'll have the lymph drained in. Now everything else in the body, because it's not an even distribution, everything else, that would be the lower extremity on the right side and the left side and the abdomen and the, the, the um, upper extremity on the left side, upper portion of the thorax on the left side, upper part of the head on the left side. All of that is going to be drained. The lymph for that, whoops, eventually will be drained in the approximately the same spot over on the other side where the internal jugular vein meets the subclavian vein. But over on the left side, we will have already established in the abdominal region a thoracic duct. So we're starting, this is the beginning then of the thoracic duct located in the abdominal. So what we're going to have coming up this way and into that beginning of the thoracic duct will be the lymph, will be the lymph that is um, coming from the lower extremities on the right side and the left side. They'll merge together and they'll come into this beginning of the thoracic duct. And you notice the thoracic duct comes up the thoracic region here. Then if we go back and take a look at the, here's the thoracic duct already established coming up this way, going behind the brachiocephalic vein, hooking behind the internal jugular vein here. Okay. So that's going to give you a kind of a fundamental idea 
of the lymphatic drainage on the right side and the left side throughout the entire body. It's not even a, a distribution. We have a right lymphatic duct and we have a thoracic duct. So the kind of uneven distribution of the lymph drainage that way. Right. So now, we start over here. Let's just look at this one for a second. We need to bring the lymph down from the head region coming down this way. And we're going to bring that down by one large trunk. That would be the jugular trunk traveling down. Both on the, you can see it's both on the right side and the left side. Same thing's going to happen. We need then to bring the lymph from the right area of the thorax, from the right hand, forearm, and arm. We need to bring that lymph back up this way. And the eventual large duct or, or tube that will carry that lymph will be the subclavian trunk. And we'll, this is what we're going to design here when we take a look at the lymph nodes and the lymph drainage on the right side. Then we all will also have a series of lymph nodes that will be located uh, paralleling the internal thoracic vessels. You remember we had the internal thoracic artery traveling down the lateral margin of the sternum. It will be accompanied by a similar named vein. And the lymph nodes tend to be accumulating around the veins as opposed to the arteries. So we are going to have along this way some lymph nodes here, internal thoracic ones. And the lymph from that region will then be drained back up into the major system by the bronchiomediastinal trunk. So we're going to see these, and we'll develop these lymph nodes in here. We'll develop a whole series of lymph nodes around here. And the final destination of the lymph that's draining through all those nodes will be into that subclavian trunk, and we'll, we'll figure that one out. The lymph that's coming from the top down on the, on the right side will eventually dump into the system here by means of the jugular trunk. And you can see over on the other side, we have fundamentally the same thing, except we've already established a thoracic duct coming up this way. But you can see coming down on the other side, the jugular trunk. You can see coming across on the left side, the subclavian trunk. And you can see coming up on the left side, the bronchiomediastinal trunk. So it's virtually the same on the right side and the left side, except over on the left side, we've already got that established thoracic duct. Okay, so that's, that's our final picture on where that lymph is going to be draining in. Now, we're not going to do anything about uh, the lymph nodes and the drainage that are going to parallel and come down the jugular trunk. We're going to leave that one alone. We'll just establish that there's a jugular trunk coming down. What we're going to try to do is establish some lymphatic drainage back into this bronchiomediastinal trunk, and we're going to establish the, 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 the pattern of developing that subclavian trunk coming in this way. The jugular trunk coming down, the subclavian trunk coming across this way, are going to merge together to give you the right lymphatic duct on this side. Sometimes, depending upon the author, depending upon how it works, they'll take this bronchiomediastinal trunk, and you notice in this particular case, they've taken it and dumped it right into the venous system by itself. In other cases, they'll take the bronchiomediastinal trunk, link it with these two together, these two, so three things come together to form the right lymphatic duct. And this um, author, the way they've done it, it's the most common way to do it, and that is to take the bronchiomediastinal trunk and put it into the venous system all by itself. And you notice the same thing's going to occur over here. Jugular trunk will come down, subclavian trunk will come across. They'll run into or merge with the already established thoracic duct coming this way. And in this case, the bronchiomediastinal trunk, once again, is going to empty into the venous system all by itself and not merge with the thoracic duct. 
And that's the common way that that's normally described. You might, it might come out, depending upon who you read, the bronchomedostinal trunk will link up with the thoracic duct. And that means, once again, similar to what we might have had over here on the right side, we would link the jugular with the subclavian with the bronchomedostinal. All three of them would run into the thoracic duct. And the thoracic duct, in turn, would empty into the venous system as one spot for that lymphatic drainage. And that's going to be right about when the internal jugular vein and the subclavian meet before they form the brachiocephalic vein. We'll, end, we'll have the lymph dumped in here, and we'll have over on the right side the lymph dumped here. So now what we need to do is establish, and we'll do it on the right side only, we'll establish the groupings of lymph nodes located in here that are going to be responsible for forming eventually the subclavian trunk, and some of that the lymph that's drained through the nodes is also going to run into this bronchiomediostinal trunk coming this way. Now that's the picture you have in your, um, in your notes. And what I'm trying to establish in this picture is the, the pectoralis minor muscle coming this way, attaching onto the coracoid process. And one way to group all these lymph nodes located in the axillary region is with respect to their positioning around the pectoralis minor muscle. We're going to have one grouping of lymph nodes above the pectoralis minor here, and we're going to have a number of groupings of lymph nodes below the pectoralis minor down here. Okay, so now let's take a look at the groupings of lymph nodes that we've got in that region. This one is a fairly schematic one I drew myself trying to give you the idea of what we're looking at. Here's my pectoralis minor muscle here. And so we have one grouping of lymph nodes above the, the level of the pectoralis minor muscle. That's called the apical set of lymph nodes up here. Sometimes also referred to as a subclavian set of lymph nodes. Two names for the same structure depends upon who you read. And then below the level of the pectoralis minor muscle, we're looking at four groupings of lymph nodes around here. And then you'll also notice we have a grouping of lymph nodes located, associated with the internal thoracic vessels. And they're going to come up the, that lymph would then travel up the medial side, the inside surface of the thoracic, um, of, of the ribs, just around the level of the margin, lateral margin of the sternum. So if we take a look at it this way, large grouping of lymph nodes termed pectoral. They're going to be closely associated with the lateral thoracic vessels. And I've labeled them in blue because mainly these lymph nodes and the lymph uh, um, vessels are going to be associated or accumulate around the, the, the vein in the area. So you notice we did have a lateral thoracic artery that came off the axillary artery. It would have a corresponding lateral thoracic vein that was traveling right with it and the pectoral set of lymph nodes would be located close to and around the lateral thoracic vein in that region. And you notice then I've got afferent vessels taking lymph from the, you know, the lateral aspect of the, of the breast region. I have the afferent vessels bringing that lymph towards those pectoral sets of nodes. Now even though I've only got one node there, there would be three or four nodes located in that pectoral region. So I have a series, I have vessels that are going to take the lymph and drain it back into the pectoral nodes. That would be those. And you notice over here, more in the posterior aspect of the thoracic cavity, we've got a subscapular set of lymph nodes. They're going to be closely associated with the subscapular vein. Subscapular vein is going to parallel and run with the subscapular artery. 
And you notice we have then a series of afferent nodes draining into those subscapular nodes. Subscapular afferent vessels draining into those subscapular nodes. Then over associated with the third part of the axillary vein, that would be the axillary vein found below the level of the pectoralis minor muscle, we'll have a series of nodes called lateral or humeral. Now these ones are going to be responsible for draining the lymph from the right hand, the right forearm, and the right arm. The lymph from those regions would drain through these lateral nodes, or sometimes referred to as humeral nodes. And once again, you'll notice I have the afferent vessels draining into these lateral nodes here. Then over here, we're looking at a, a grouping of nodes called central nodes, and they're going to be fairly closely associated with the second part of the axillary vein. That would be the axillary vein as it passes kind of behind the pectoralis minor muscle. And we notice that the central set of nodes would have its own set of afferent vessels, bringing lymph directly to those nodes. But you'll also notice that the lateral and the subscapular and the pectoral are going to send efferent vessels to the central node. So that the lymph that will be drained through these sets of nodes here will be double drained and filtered through the central set. Okay? And then from the central set, we're going to send efferents that will go to the apical set of nodes above the level of the pectoralis minor muscle. And the apical set of nodes will send efferents, which will help to make up that subclavian trunk. And the subclavian trunk, we said on that side, would merge with the jugular trunk coming down this way. And you'll notice we have a series of lymph nodes located, associated with the internal thoracic vessels. So the lymph that's draining into those internal thoracic nodes would eventually dump into the bronchomediastinal trunk. And the bronchomediastinal trunk will come up and dump into, more than likely dump directly into the subclavian vein just where the internal jugular vein comes in. But the jugular trunk coming down this way and the subclavian trunk coming across this way are going to merge on the right side to give us a right lymphatic duct. So when it's dotted line that you're seeing, I'm trying to indicate that there are afferent vessels coming into the node. When it's a solid line, I'm indicating an efferent vessel leaving the nodes. And you notice that then the pectoral set and the subscapular set and the lateral set have series of afferent vessels draining into those nodes, but they in turn will send efferent vessels to the central. The central has its own set of afferents, but it will send efferents coming out this way to the apical set of nodes, and the apical will then help to form the subclavian trunk, and it will merge with the jugular to help form the right lymphatic duct and then the internal thoracic vessels, will, uh, lymphatic drainage, will run into the bronchiomediastinal trunk, and then that in turn would empty into the venous system, approximately about around the subclavian vein region. So these things give you a kind of a relative idea of approximately where those, vessel, those lymph nodes are located. These ones will be located around the lateral thoracic vein. This one located, groupings of lymph nodes located around the subscapular uh, vein. This one around, approximately around the third portion of the axillary vein, around approximately the second area of the axillary vein, here and up here, the apical set on the other side of the pectoralis minor muscle, somewhere around the level of the first axillary, first portion of the axillary vein. Now we took the 
axillary artery and we divided it into three parts. A part above the pectoralis minor was the first part, behind the pectoralis minor was the second part, and below the pectoralis minor was the third part. There will be a corresponding axillary vein which will travel with that artery and it too has those three parts. And this helps you to get a somewhat of an idea of a, the approximate location of the groupings of these lymph nodes. The pectoral one's going to be around the lateral thoracic vessels, which are going to somewhat parallel the margin of the pectoralis major muscle, pectoralis minor muscle. So that's the grouping then of the lymph nodes that's found around the, in, the, in this axillary region. This one was from another source, obviously, and it gives you somewhat of the same kind of idea. Here's our apical set of nodes here, fairly closely associated with the first part of the axillary ve uh, vein here. Central set, fairly closely associated with the second part, coming around this way. Lateral set or humeral set, a little bit further along the third part of the axillary vessel. Pectoral set here, very closely associated with the margin of the pectoralis minor muscle. And posterior or subscapular kind of tucked around behind, associated with the subscapular vessels. Internal thoracic nodes, more on the more medial side here. And then if we take the flow through the uh, apical, or um, sometimes referred to as subclavian grouping of nodes, then they would then form that subclavian trunk, and it would then link up with the jugular trunk coming down, the, depending on who you read, would also li link up with the bronchomedostinal trunk coming up. Now you notice on this one here, they have included a grouping of lymph nodes located between the pectoralis major muscle and the deltoid muscle, referred to as the deltopectoral grouping of nodes. I didn't include those in my list because they're not true axillary nodes. They're not in that axillary region. But this particular author included them when they took a look at the whole picture. So that's why I don't have this grouping of nodes uh, listed because it's not grouped as an axillary grouping of lymph nodes. It's found between the pec major and, and the uh, deltoid muscle. Yeah. No. There will be pictures that will you come from different sources that are going to have different things on them, more, more than what's listed in the book, maybe sometimes even a different description of uh, name that's um, in the book. For instance, you notice, um, well, not in this case. This one, this lateral grouping of nodes is sometimes referred to as the humeral set. Depends on the source that you have. They'll call it humeral. Some people will call it lateral. Um, no, you'll be tested on the material that I presented in the, in the notes here. I was just explaining why this was on the picture, but it's not included in the notes. It's because it really doesn't fit into the definition of groupings of axillary. There are um, f five groupings of axillary nodes, pectoral above the pectoralis uh, minor muscle, and four that are grouped below the pectoralis minor. Okay. And that's my schematic look, try to give you an idea of the, the design of it. Here's another look looking at the same thing. Uh, for instance, you'll notice here, it's called humeral or lateral grouping of nodes in that region. And they also include those deltopectoral ones that I didn't include because it's not really uh, included in the axillary grouping of lymph nodes. So that's another look at the same thing. All right, so now we take a look at the thoracic region. 
we're looking at uh, the uh, vertebral column in this region will be made up of uh, 12 vertebrae, they're thoracic vertebrae. They will be adapted for the attachment of ribs. Uh, the first seven are going to attach, first seven ribs will attach to the sternum individually by their own piece of costal cartilage. Ribs 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 are referred to as false ribs. 8, 9, and 10, the costal cartilage of those ribs will attach onto the costal cartilage of 7, and that's how those ribs indirectly attach onto the sternum. So that's one reason why they're referred to as false. The last two are also referred to as floating because they don't attach onto the sternum at all. So there's a look at the complete view of the uh, thoracic cavity. One through seven are classified as true because they have their own individual piece of cartilage that attaches onto the sternum. Ribs 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 are referred to as false, and 11 and 12 are also referred to as floating because they don't make an attachment onto the sternum. Sternum itself here comes in three parts. The top part of the sternum is the manubrium, that's that portion. Middle portion here is the body of the sternum. And the inferior portion here is the xiphoid process. And the xiphoid process stays cartilaginous for a long time, actually. It becomes pretty flexible. The junction between the manubrium and the body of the sternum there is referred to as the sternal angle. And that's the spot where the second rib comes in. Coming across that way. Now just to uh, kind of, there's a look at the design of the, of the sternum. The manubrium is the top. You notice the uh, top portion of the sternum is going to have an articulating surface here and here for the clavicle to attach. We'll also have a surface here for the first rib to attach. And at the sternal angle, we'll have the second rib attached. And then here's the body of the sternum here, and then the xiphoid process, the inferior portion of the sternum down, located down there. Right. And what will I do? Just to go over a thoracic vertebrae, because you're going to have to learn this one in the lab. You're looking at a thoracic, it's not going to be in the book. It, it, this is just an overview, just to give you an idea, uh, a background. Here's a thoracic vertebrae here. One of the common characteristics of thoracic is that it has a fairly long pointed spine, and the spine points downward. You'll notice that it's typical of, any, of a typical vertebrae. It will have a body here. It'll have a vertebral foramen in the middle to allow the spinal cord to go out. Transverse process on one side, transverse process on the other side. In order to link the body to the transverse process, this portion and this portion of the vertebrae will be referred to as the pedicle. So cervical vertebrae, except for C1, they'll all have pedicles because they all have transverse processes and bodies. Thoracic vertebrae will all have pedicles. Lumbar vertebrae, the lower vertebrae, will also have pedicles because they will have a body and a transverse process. They'll all have spinous processes pointing towards the back. And as I mentioned, the thoracic vertebrae, the spinous process is fairly long and pointed, and it points downward. And we have a con the, con the connection between the transverse process and the spinous process, this area here, and this area here of the vertebrae is referred to as the lamina. And you'll notice that the thoracic vertebrae is adapted for a rib to attach. On the transverse process here, there's a, a facet, nice shallow, smooth depression. There will be a tubercle on the rib that which will articulate with that facet on the transverse process. 
And you'll notice that, for the most part, uh, ribs are going to fit in between vertebrae. There's a typical one here. Except for the first rib, it fits right into the first thoracic vertebrae. And ribs 10, 11, and 12, those ribs fit right into the corresponding numbered vertebrae. But in between those two, we get this kind of organ organization, where we have the head of the rib fitting in between the thoracic vertebrae in that fashion. And in order then to accommodate the head of the rib, at the level of the pedicle here, we have half facets or demi facets. So that if you stack one vertebrae on top of another, the two demi facets make a full facet for the head of the rib to fit into. So that's what those represent. Those are demi facets here. And then we have a facet on the transverse process for the tubercle of the rib to fit into. It makes a good connection then between the rib and the thoracic vertebrae. Another look at the same thing, and you'll notice when we get a little further down, we have a full facet on the, on the vertebrae to accommodate for the rib. But in between those spots, we end up with demi-facets here at about the level of the pedicle, so the two demi-facets together will make a full facet, and then the head of the rib would attach onto, into that spot. And then we looked at the design then of the attachment of the ribs to the sternum that way. Um, then once again, this is just an overview so that, because uh, you're going you're to have to learn it in the lab section, so I might just go over it here. Here's a fairly typical rib. The end of the rib here, the front end of it will have costal cartilage, hyaline cartilage, that will attach the rib to the sternum. Body of the rib, shaft of the rib would be this portion. On the inside lower surface will be a costal groove. Costal groove will accommodate the uh, intercostal artery, vein, and nerve. They'll travel around in that costal groove, and, and they'll be somewhat protected by the rib in that fashion. Angle of the rib is just the spot where it bends at the most. Head of the rib is at the other end. That's the end that will articulate with the thoracic vertebrae. And you notice it has two facets here with a little bit of a crest in the middle. And then just below the head of the rib would be the neck, just that region. And you notice the rib will have a tubercle, shown better in this picture, but there's the tubercle there. That tubercle will now fit into the uh, facet on the transverse process of the thoracic vertebrae to make a good connection to it. Whoops, didn't mean to do that. If you look very carefully at that tubercle, there is a spot where it's very smooth, closer to the head. That's the articulating portion of the tubercle. That's the part where it'll articulate directly into that facet on the transverse process. If you come a little bit further along, there's a non-articulating portion of the tubercle. That's the part where the tubercle of the rib will articulate with the transverse process by means of a ligament attachment. So that tubercle really comes in two parts. Part that's closer to the head of the rib is the articulating part, and the part that's a little bit further along is the non-articulating part. This part you will, atta will attach the rib to the transverse transverse process by means of a ligament, and this part here will be the actual part of the tubercle that fits into the facet on the transverse process. So it's a little bit different. Yep? What does it mean when you have like a rib out of place? Like, I'm not sure what the term means. You ever have like um, a pain in your back or you go see a chiropractor or something and they'll say like you have a rib out? A rib out? Yeah. And like they pop it back in. Do you know like what happens? Or? No. Pop a rib back in. 
maybe, it's a guess, that there's a little bit of uh, subluxation of the head of the rib in its, in its spot, and if they, for some reason it's popped out ever so slightly, but, uh, and manipulation might put it back in. But, well, if it were, yeah, that's all I can think of. That's the only thing it could be. It's a possibility, I suppose, that there would be a slight separation of the joint, and then the, the rib is then manipulated to go back into its original um, attachment. There are considerable, where do I go with this? Considerable ligament attachment between the rib and the, and the thoracic vertebrae. Um, not only does it fit into that spot, but there are ligaments that will join the non-articulating non portion of the tubercle to the back portion here of the transverse process. And there's a whole grouping of ligaments around that attachment of the head of the rib into the, into the uh, thoracic vertebrae. It could simply mean a slight, very slight, I would suggest, uh, separation or movement of the head of the rib from its articulating spot, on the, particularly here on its uh, articulation with the pedicle. So there's a look at the rib and that, th those kind of, uh, that terminology will be uh, listed in the lab section. So it'll, this kind of gives you just kind of an overview of trying to take a look at it. Here's a look at the first rib, which is a different rib altogether, different shape to it. And we will look at the design of the first rib a little later on. It has some, it has some landmarks on the top surface of the rib here. And uh, we'll talk about those when we get that far, yeah. a few more pages along. We'll take a look at the first ribs particularly and its design and come back and take a look at it. All right, so now, next step. We take a look at the area called the axilla. It's a triangular-shaped area, kind of a pyramid-shaped area, and it will then have boundaries to it. If we're looking on the medial side here, the medial portion, the medial boundary here will be made up of the ribs coming along this way. It will be made up of intercostal muscle. That would be muscle that sits in between your ribs would help to form the medial boundary. And there's a fairly distinct muscle on the outer surface of the ribs, the serratus anterior muscle. So all of these three things put together will help, will give you kind of the medial boundary to this uh, space, the axillary space. Okay. If we look on the front side here, the anteriorly, we'll have the pectoralis major muscle, pectoralis minor muscle will help to give us a front boundary. We'll have the clavicle, collarbone will help give a front um, boundary. And the subclavius muscle, small muscle that's found underneath the clavicle, will all come together to help us give us, give us a front boundary to this space. And back here, posterior boundary would be the scapula. We're also looking at the subscapularis muscle, which is a muscle coming from the uh, anterior surface of the scapula. And we can also put in the teres major muscle and the latissimus dorsi muscle. All of those will help give us a posterior boundary to the space coming around this way. The lateral boundary here will be made up a little bit of uh, the bicipital groove, the intertubercular groove on the uh, humerus. It's a groove that's going to be generated by the greater and lesser tubercles of the humerus. And it's a, it's a groove that will accommodate the uh, long head of the biceps brachii muscle will fit into that little groove. That's why it's referred to sometimes as the bicipital groove or intertubercular groove. Now you notice the picture that I've got <clears throat> in the book is flipped to this one, right? This one has the posterior uh, down at the bottom of the page and the anterior up at the top, and my picture was flipped around. 
but it's basically the same kind of picture. And on my picture, you'll notice uh, I've also included the axillary artery, the axillary vein, those two structures found in that region. And on my picture, the black little dots represent three parts of the brachial plexus as it passes in the axillary area. You'll notice that one, one dot will be somewhat lateral, some dot will be a little bit medial to the uh, axillary vessels and one will be a little bit posterior. When we look at the brachial plexus, the large grouping of nerves that travel down and supply the front of the thoracic region, back of the thoracic region, and your arm, we'll take a look at the design of the brachial plexus. And as it passes in this region, brachial plexus is divided up into three cords, three bundles. One bundle passes, one cord passes behind this, the axillary vessels, one passes medial to it, one passes lateral to it. And that's what those dots represent in the picture that you've got in the manual. They represent the three parts of the brachial plexus as it's passing in this region. Now in here, because got, they have color, the nerves are shown in the yellow. But it's the same, it's the same picture. Okay, so that's a look then at the, at the axilla. In that region and the boundaries of it. Then the first muscle that we're going to look at. Now every muscle that we look at is going to be done the same way. We're going to end up uh, describing an origin to the muscle, or a proximal attachment, sometimes it's referred to as, a, an insertion, which is the distal attachment of the muscle. Normally, the uh, insertion for the muscle will be attached to the movable part. We'll look at the action that the muscle produces, and we'll look at the nerve supply associated with the muscle. So you notice in the, in the notes, the O stands for origin. That's an old terminology that they use to describe one attachment of the muscle, usually the attachment closer to the main trunk of the body. More and more now they don't refer to it as the origin, it's more the proximal attachment. Then you'll notice there is uh, an eye, that's the insertion, that's where the muscle ends up attaching distally. There's a nerve supply and there's action that the muscle produces. And all the muscles that we do will be treated fundamentally the same way, they'll all be listed like that as well. So we're looking at then the pectoralis major muscle, large muscle that kind of covers the front of the thoracic region. We already had maybe about two-thirds maybe of the base of the breast would be covering the pectoralis major muscle. It comes in two parts. Basically, we have one part here, a clavicular portion, which comes from the portions of the clavicle. And then we have a sternal portion. The sternal portion comes from uh, a lot of the costal cartilage. Both the clavicular portion and the sternal portion come together and attach into the bicipital groove on the humerus. So it has a fair, they, the two heads of the pec major have a common attachment into the bicipital groove. The clavicular portion of the muscle, this portion here, is going to be innervated by the lateral pectoral nerve. The lateral pectoral nerve is a nerve coming off the brachial plexus and it's going to innervate then the clavicular portion of the pectoralis major muscle. The sternal portion here will be innervated by the medial pectoral nerve. That's another nerve. That medial pectoral nerve will also innervate the pectoralis minor muscle, which is a muscle found deep to the major. So we end up with uh, one muscle having two nerve supplies, lateral pectoral and medial pectoral. We'll give you then the, the nerve supply to the pectoralis major muscle. 
And later on, a couple more pages along, we will then sort of pull out, I kind of pull out the brachial plexus, the large nerve supply located in the axillary region, and we talk about it separately. We kind of pull it out separately and take a look at how it's developed. And then we can take those nerves from the brachial plexus and then we can plop them in to the description of as we go along. Now I've already described here the pectoralis major muscle with its two nerve supplies. Once I talk about the brachial plexus as a whole and I show you where the lateral pectoral nerve comes from and where the medial pectoral nerve comes from, then it'll come together and make a little bit more sense. But at the moment it's kind of uh, fragmented, but it'll, it'll come together. Pectoralis major muscle is a large muscle on the front surface of the thoracic region. It will assist in flexing the shoulder, moving the shoulder upward. The clavicular head will contract and it will assist in flexing the shoulder this way. Once the shoulder is in the flex position, the sternal head will assist in extending the shoulder, moving the shoulder back down this way. Now the pectoralis major muscle cannot take the shoulder and extend it from the anatomical position. It can't do this. But once it's up this way in the flex position, it then can assist in extending the flexed shoulder. Pectoralis major muscle you can see would allow you to adduct your arm, would be, allow you to pull your arm inward, and it would give you medial rotation of the humerus. It would turn the arm inward. If you take a look at the muscle and figure out, okay, if I shorten the distance between here and here, I'm going to roll the radius inward, correct? And if my arm is out this way abducted, the pectoralis major muscle would help to bring the arm back in. Some of the movements are fairly easy to understand when you take a look at the two attachments of the muscle. So that's basically the way we're going to do most, most uh, all the muscles that we're going to look at. We'll look at the origin, the insertion, we'll look at the nerve supply, and we'll, then we'll look at the fundamental actions that the muscle produces. Now there are more mu movements that that muscle produces than I've lifted here. I mean, some will describe what they call horizontal adduction, moving your arm across this way. That would be a function of the pectoralis major muscle. But I've only included flexing of the shoulder, extending of a flexed shoulder, adducting and medial rotation are the primary movements that you can associate with the pectoralis major. Yep. Oh, you're just waving. Okay. All right. Now, this is kind of a, a sideline here. There's a joint that they refer to as the scapula, it's not in the book, so. They, it's referred to as the scapular thoracic joint. It's not a real bone-to-bone -bone articulation, but what it tries to do is explain the movement of the scapula on the back of the rib cage. Uh, the next muscle that we're going to look at is responsible for moving the scapula around. So in order to um, kind of make sure we understand what we're doing, what I've done is I've looked at the movements that are attributed to muscles that will move the scapula. Movement of the scapula around like this is referred to as movement in that scapular thoracic joint. It's not a bone-to-bone -bone articulation, but it's a means of trying to describe the movement of the scapula. So if we have the scapula, there are muscles when they contract, they will elevate the scapula. They'll lift it up. Once the scapula is elevated, we have muscles when they contract, they will depress the scapula, move the scapula down. You cannot move the scapula down from the anatomical position. You have to have raised it up first before you can allow it to be depressed. So we have muscles that elevate and depress the scapula, lift it up and down, right? We will have muscles that will adduct or retract the scapulas, move them back so that the medial borders of the scapula on either side come together. And we have muscles that will protract, that will move the scapulas around to the front. 
and we have some muscles that will allow the point of the shoulder to be raised up, elevate or lift up the point, upwardly rotate the point of the shoulder, like that. And once the point of the shoulder is elevated, we would have muscles that would downwardly rotate the point of the shoulder. And clearly, you cannot downwardly rotate the point of the shoulder anywhere past the anatomical position. It just won't go. So you have to have already lifted it up first before you can then contract muscles which will lower the point of the shoulder. So we have these three groupings of movements. We can lift it up and we can elevate it and depress it. We can move it back in. We can retract. We can pull it the other way around and protract. Or, and we can take the point of the shoulder and upwardly rotate it. And then once it's upwardly rotated, there will be muscles when they contract, will then assist it downwardly rotating the point of the shoulder. So those are the descriptions then of the movement in that scapular thoracic joint. All right. So now, the muscle that is immediately underneath the pectoralis major muscle is the pectoralis minor muscle. Comes from the third, fourth, and fifth ribs. Comes up and attaches onto the coracoid process of the scapula. That muscle will be responsible for downwardly rotating the point of the shoulder, moving the point of the shoulder downward once it's upwardly rotated. And it will also be responsible for protracting the scapula, moving the scapula around to the front, or abducting, if you like, moving the scapula around this way, and lowering the point of the shoulder would be the movement described solely by the pectoralis minor muscle. The pectoralis minor muscle will be innervated by the medial pectoral nerve. It's the same nerve that innervates the, the sternal portion of the pectoralis uh, major muscle. So the medial pectoral nerve goes through the pectoralis minor muscle and innervates it, then travels a little bit further forward and innervates the sternal portion of the pectoralis major muscle. And the major would then be responsible for protracting the scapula and downwardly rotating the point of the shoulder. You can see that if you pull on the coracoid process, you're going to take the point of the shoulder and rotate it downward, and you're going to take the scapula and try to move it around to the front a little bit. That would be then responsibility then of the pectoralis minor muscle. Okay. And it's going to be located right underneath the pectoralis major muscle. And we use the minor as a landmark in trying to divide up axillary vessels into first, second, and third components, depending upon where they were relative that, to that muscle. All right. Now, what I'm going to do now is I'm going, to, I'm going to go back and I'm going to um, talk as a, uh, in a whole about the circulatory system, the venous system first. So it's not going to be in there. This is a background so that it gives you an idea where some of these veins are coming from. And I hope you remember that on the venous system, we end up with two levels of veins, deep ones and superficial ones. The deep ones parallel the arteries. The superficial veins are veins that are immediately underneath your skin. You can track them or see them a little bit. So if we're looking at the deep veins here in the forearm, we'll have a deep vein here that will parallel and run with the radial artery. It's the radial vein along the radial side or lateral side of the forearm. And then there will be one on the medial side, a deep vein paralleling the ulnar artery traveling down this way. 
those two veins somewhere around the level of the elbow will merge together and they'll form the brachial vein. The brachial vein would be the vein that's found in the arm region here. The brachial vein will be then paralleling and running with the brachial artery. So we have an artery in the region and we'll have, in most cases, we're going to have it, end up with a, a couple of veins accompanying that one artery. So if we take a look, and uh, I think I have another picture that gives you no, this one. So here we're looking at the same kind of thing. Here's our radial. Now in this case, they're being a little bit more accurate than normal. A lot of the times we have two accompanying veins to the one artery. So in this case, on the accompanying the radial artery down here will be a couple of radial veins. And obviously over here we have accompanying the ulnar artery, we have a couple of ulnar veins. Now, that kind of configuration is referred to as vena comitante, or accompanying veins. Sometimes, most of the time, we'll have two accompanying veins to the one artery. If you think about it, on the arterial side, at least in the, a lot of the parts of the body, we have gravity that helps to bring the arterial blood down. We have the, the pumping action of the heart, which will put pressure behind that blood in order to help push the arterial blood along but we don't have anything on the venous side in that nature to bring the venous blood back. So in order to try to help to equalize the volume of blood coming down to the volume of blood that has to be returned on the venous side, we end up with two accompanying veins to the one artery, and that helps to equalize the volume flow down to the volume flow that has to come back. It's referred to as vena comitante, or accompanying veins. And you notice in this picture we have two accompanying veins that will accompany the one radial artery traveling down, and we have two accompanying veins here that will uh, accompany the one ulnar artery, bringing arterial blood down. Somewhere around the elbow joint, and veins are a little bit less uh, specific than arteries, somewhere around the level of the elbow joint, those things are going to merge. And if, if we're traveling up, we'll end up with a couple of brachial veins. Brachial veins will be the veins found in the arm region, the brachial region. And you'll notice, once again, we end up with a couple of brachial veins which are going to accompany the one large brachial artery, which is carrying arterial blood down. So in this picture, we're looking at the deep veins here, and you can see they've got a couple of them traveling with the, right in the middle of that would be the brachial artery. If we take the brachial veins coming up this way, and we stop at this point here, we'll stop a description of the deep veins and go back and take a look at, starting at the hand coming up, a look at the more superficial veins. We're going to leave the deep veins at the level of the brachial vein, or veins, and now I'm going to go down to the level of the hand, and I want to show you then the beginnings of the superficial set of veins in the upper extremity. On the lateral side, coming from the venous network on the back of your hand, and you can see that everybody's venous network is a little different on the back of your hand. Subcutaneously, we'll end up with a fairly large vein traveling on the radial side, the cephalic vein. And then over draining the medial side of that venous pattern on the back of your hand, we'll have a basilic vein. Okay? Then, if we follow it up, Here's our cephalic vein traveling up the lateral side. Here's our basilic vein traveling up the medial side. If we follow the basilic vein all the way up to just about where 
um, the teres major muscle comes in. What's going to happen is the basilic vein will head deep and it will then attach or run into the already established brachial veins. And when those two things come together, the basilic vein and the brachial veins merge together, so we're merging superficial to deep at that point, the continuation of the venous system up will form the axillary vein. Okay? The axillary vein would then travel up. It would go underneath the pectoralis minor muscle. It would go underneath the clavicle and over the first rib. When we get to past the level of the first rib and clavicle, that vein would change name and become the subclavian vein. So here's where we're going to get the superficial venous pattern dumping into the deep pattern. It's where the basilic vein comes up and maybe mm, almost about the level of where the teres major muscle comes and attaches onto the humerus. The basilic vein heads deep and hooks up with the brachial veins. And when they come together, they form the axillary vein. So the axillary vein is being described as kind of starting at the bottom edge or bottom level of where the teres major muscle has come and attached onto the humerus. If you follow the, the cephalic vein up the lateral side, you'll notice it keeps on traveling all by itself up the lateral side. It goes between the deltoid muscle and the pectoralis major muscle and ends up attaching into the axillary vein here just before the axillary vein goes underneath the clavicle and over the first rib. Once the axillary vein passes that anatomical landmark, on the other side of the clavicle, it would be referred to as the subclavian vein. On the bottom side of the clavicle first rib, it's the axillary vein. So we use the clavicle first rib as our landmark in changing the name of the vein. Below the clavicle first rib, it's axillary. Immediately above the clavicle first rib, it's subclavian. Same vein, two different regions, two separate names, but it's the same vessel. And so our superficial one from the cephalic will end up entering into the deep set way up here. And our superficial from the basilic will end up into the deep system right about here where the teres major muscle comes and attaches. Okay. Question? No? Nope. Just, just shaking? Okay, that's a good spot. We'll stop there. And we'll pick up that um, 